Let me give you a number. 156 billion. 156 billion. Try to visualize how big that number is. If you could live for 156 billion minutes, you would live until you were 296,804 years old. And what if you had $156 billion? What could you buy? It would have funded more than 4.4 million Black-owned businesses. It would have paid for more than 8 million four-year degrees based on the national average of a, a four-year public degree. It would have replaced the pipes in Flint, Michigan nearly 3,000 times over. It would have covered nearly all the damage of Hurricane Katrina. And, and this goes to my father. It's more than double the annual economic burden of the opioid crisis. That's author and researcher Andre Perry of the Brookings Institution, speaking virtually at a recent 88.9 Community Stories live event. His book, Know Your Price, Valuing Black Lives and Property in American Black Cities, uses data to show how black homes and neighborhoods have been systemically undervalued and disinvested. And what we found pretty much astounds that homes in black neighborhoods equi under equivalent social circumstances are underpriced by 23%, about 48,000 per home, and what amounts to lost equity. I'm Tariq Moody, and this is By Every Measure. On this episode, we're talking about the racial wealth gap, picking up right where we left off with housing. The wealth gap is so much bigger than just housing alone. According to a report from Forbes, closing the racial wealth gap across all sectors would add between one and one and a half trillion dollars to the U.S. economy by 2028. Making that 156 billion figure just seem like a drop in the bucket. In this country, there are two ways that families build wealth, inheritance and entrepreneurship. We're gonna talk about both ways of wealth building in this episode and how black people were left behind in housing, in business, and in policy. Again, it's all about the systems. I say this all the time. I hope you repeat it as often as possible. There's nothing wrong with black people that ending racism can't solve. When we're talking about the state of black cities, the state of black neighborhoods, we're constantly saying the conditions or the state of them is predicated on individual people's behavior. But the reality is that racism is robbing people of the resources to lift themselves up. And so if we want to fit the issues in our neighborhood, we should not fix black people. We should fix the policies that extract wealth from black people. To understand how we got here in the first place, like we've been doing in every episode so far, we have to go back and look at the history. That's where my conversation with Reggie Jackson begins, picking right up where we left off in the housing episode. And one fact that really stood out to me, Reggie, was if an average, if a black family wealth continues to grow at the same pace as it does right now, it would take black families over 220 years, 228 years exactly, to amass that same amount of wealth white families have today. Um, so let's go look at your article, which, which is a very fascinating headline for Milwaukee Independent. When America catches a cold, black gets pneumonia. The impact, of, the impact of an uneven economic playing field. So tell me, how do we get to this point where it takes 228 years for us to catch up? 
Well, you know, there's an assumption made that the the, the white wealth isn't going to continue to grow, uh, which we know it will, right? So, you know, when we think about wealth, American wealth, most people don't understand what wealth is is in this country. Wealth is in your bank account, your stock portfolio, your 401k. Most American wealth is in, in, in your homes that you own. So one of the biggest, you know, factors that disadvantage blacks is that we have a much lower home ownership rate than whites. Uh, nationwide, the black home ownership rate is, is just over 40%. And it's over 70% for whites. So they have a built-in advantage right there. And the reason uh, here in Milwaukee specifically that it's even bigger challenge is our home ownership rate is, is like 27, 28% for blacks and almost 70% for whites in the city of Milwaukee. So, you know, we can talk about wealth, but a lot of it is related to the fact that for decades, black people could not get mortgages to buy homes and white people could. Uh, they were incentivized by uh, the federal government. Uh, they were incentivized by state and local government. They were incentivized by banks and realtors to become homeowners. And at the same time, black people were denied those opportunities. So, you know, the black home ownership rate nationwide when the 1968 Federal Fair Housing Act was passed was 41.3%. Uh, at the end of 2018, it had grown to 42.9%, but it actually peaked in 2005, Tariq. Uh, and it's been going down every year since then. And ultimately, we know with this pandemic and the economic crisis that, that, that is you know, laying waste to millions of jobs, that we're going to see uh, it exacerbate itself. And that home ownership rate for blacks is going to go down significantly. I'm telling people all the time that we have only seen the tip of the iceberg with this pandemic and the economic impact. We're going to continue to move backwards as a black community. And I can guarantee you uh, our, our backwards movement will be much quicker than the backwards movement for white folks. Uh, we will be much more likely to, to have our homes foreclosed on. Man, it's going to be ugly moving forward, Tariq. You know, this, this wealth gap will continue to, to expand and, and, and grow to uh, a size that we can't even imagine what it's going to be a year from now, two years from now. It's going to be much worse, I think. You can really look at the racial wealth gap especially during this pandemic. COVID-19 has pulled away the Band-Aid and show the true infection of the racial wealth gap. The typical white family has 10 times the wealth of a typical black family. And a lot of black families have fewer resources in the case of emergency, such as COVID-19. This pandemic has put us in a recession. We know from the data, the history from past recessions that are recessions affect black people worse than white people, and they are the last to recover economically. But it wasn't always like this. Milwaukee had a thriving black middle class in the 1950s, thanks to the other way Americans built wealth, entrepreneurship. And, you know, many people have heard of, of the black business district on Walnut Street that people, you know, now refer to as Bronzeville. It wasn't called Bronzeville back then. But at that particular time, 1950, um, according to Census Bureau, uh, black business ownership rate per capita in Milwaukee was the highest in the United States of America. Really? So it wasn't a whole lot of black businesses, but you know, we had dentist offices, we had doctor's offices, attorney's offices, car washes, uh, nightclubs. Uh, you know, we had everything we needed. But what happened? How did Milwaukee lose what seemed like a thriving black business hub 
It wasn't the freeway that destroyed it, like most people will tell you. It was urban renewal. The first urban renewal project in Milwaukee uh, was called the Hillside and Roosevelt Urban Renewal. And it literally wiped out half of the Black-owned businesses in Milwaukee by tearing down everything on Walnut Street from 6th Street to 10th Street. Now, the freeway was being built, but it hadn't reached that far north. They were building from the south to the north. At that time, they were destroying the Italian community in the Third Ward, mm. tearing their houses down and their businesses down. But by the time it, the freeway got to where you know Walnut Street was, all of those businesses were already gone. They had already been torn down years before. And then what was left of that community, the residential uh, properties and, and the few businesses that, that weren't destroyed, uh, they were destroyed by you know the, the rest of the construction of the freeway. A thing that you should know about urban renewal policies that some of them might even had good intentions, but overall they affected housing affordability and living costs, which led to gentrification. So that really was something that the black community never fully recovered from. One of the, the, the huge factors is that we, we never were able to grow a very large black middle class and upper middle class in Milwaukee because the, 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 the engine of, of that uh, on Walnut Street was destroyed. And so we never built a strong black middle class and upper middle class like places like Chicago, Detroit, Cleveland, because black people had been in those places much longer and had been established for a much longer period of time. So we, we literally came to Milwaukee too late. What he's saying is that black people didn't have enough time in Milwaukee to build that generational wealth because by the 1970s, the jobs started going away anyway. Companies like A.O. Smith, Alice Chalmers, Schlitz, they all started reducing their workforce and even leaving the city, which devastated black workers. And as far as starting a business, black people had problems too with banks. There have only ever been a handful of black owned banks in Milwaukee, which is another aspect of the wealth gap, inequality in banking. But why is it that we have to pin on black banks? Why is it that we not demanding that the white banks treat us the same as they treat white people? We know that there has been multiple, you know, uh, lawsuits for discrimination by banks, giving different terms to black borrowers, whether it be buying a car, buying a house, getting a loan for a business, not providing black people with capital to start a business. You know, we talk about entrepreneurship all the time. Part of the reason that entrepreneurship is so much more difficult for black folks is because we can't get access to capital. Uh, people don't understand that most businesses fail within their first year. The ones that are successful and ones that have enough capital uh, set aside that they borrow when they open their business to get through that first very difficult year. And don't forget that they also have within the, in the era of family, the family money, family friends, the inheritance money, right? Which we were robbed from the, you know, all the housing, all the, the wealth of devaluation of our property and never getting the access. Absolutely. Quality of life lags behind for many black residents in Milwaukee in multiple indicators, including employment, poverty, and home ownership. According to a recent report on the state of black well-being in the nation's largest metropolitan cities from the African American Leadership Alliance, MKE, the median household income is only $31,000 for the whole household, and less than 8% of black households have an income above $100,000. And that's why you see this thing called the reverse migration, counter to what happened after the war, the Great Migration. As we're looking as blacks are moving now to the South, moving back to the South, to places like Houston and, and Austin and Dallas. I know a lot of people that have moved to Texas, man, and North Carolina, uh, you know, Virginia, 
places of that nature, they're moving to those places because those are healthier communities. They're nicer communities. The houses are cheaper. You can get more bang for the buck. Uh, you know, you can get more stable employment there. You don't have a lot of the problems that you have in, in, in cities like Chicago and Detroit and Milwaukee and Cleveland. You don't have those issues. Uh, you know, one of my best friends moved down to a, a suburb of Austin, Texas, because she was tired of Milwaukee. She said, I don't want to live here anymore. It's, it's, it's too much of a struggle day to day. And I want my kids to have a better future. She moved down there. She said she'll never move back to Milwaukee. She loved it down there so much. Her mama moved down there with her. Her sister moved down there with her. And they never looked back, man. And one, you know, her one sister stayed. But that's because she loves Milwaukee. But the rest of them, like, I'm leaving. I'm not coming back. I have a friend who moved out to 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 New Mexico and loves it in New Mexico, <laughs> right? Of all places. I have several people, including some of my wife's family members who moved out to Arizona. I know a guy, man, that left Mississippi uh, and, and moved to Utah, Salt Lake City, Utah. And the, and, the, and the funny thing about this, I think Milwaukee leadership, maybe some don't realize this doesn't just hurt the black community, these blacks leaving. This hurts the whole industry up here that, Milwaukee, Wisconsin needs to learn, at least in my opinion, what's, what, why people go to those places, especially blacks. Because I truly believe, you know, Milwaukee, there's a lot of great things here. I'm not going to lie. There's some interesting promising, you know. But you can't, like you said, and I believe it, like if Milwaukee, if, pretend Milwaukee's your body, and if you have like a, a bad heart, but the rest of your body's fine, but you, you don't treat that heart, that heart condition is going to travel to the rest of your body, which is Milwaukee. And I feel like Milwaukee is ignoring that and like talking about all the good stuff, but ignoring it and not realizing the black professionals, the health commissioner going to DC. Right. I know just know a lot of people who are like, what's my kid, black family. Once my kid is in high school, we're out of here. And you hear white people say, you can't leave. You can't leave. Well, understand those southern cities, the most people understand, like Atlanta, the mayor, Mayor Jackson, policies help place build wealth for blacks. So that's one thing I think Milwaukee can learn is like Mayor Jackson put policies to like put a black person on a bank board. If you don't, I take I'm taking the city's money out for airport, hire subcontractors, right? They did that and help build that wealth and that spread throughout the southeast. And a lot of southerners, black southern northerners saw that and they came down not just Atlanta, the Durham, Charlotte, Austin, all that because of those policies. So I think Milwaukee can learn a lot if they want to compete because they're competing, not competing to Minneapolis or Chicago, man. They're competing with everybody now. It's a global world. They need to look at the city holistically, not just downtown, but the 53026 seriously, like with the opportunity zones, which I read a lot about, which doesn't really do anything anymore. You know, they're nice things, but they really help white developers not the black communities yeah they look good on paper you know uh, uh, Tariq, what you just shared about what happened to atlanta when people ask me well what can we do to help milwaukee i say do the same thing you did y y listen what atlanta did what maynard jackson did was he said listen the things that that we have done as a governmental organization for white people we're going to do it for black people and see what happens mm -hmm. do in milwaukee 
what you've done for white people for decades, do the same thing for black people and you won't have any more problems in Milwaukee. That is the key. I, I, I get tired of people asking me for the solution and I tell them that that's it. And they're like, well, you know, that sounds discriminatory. I'm like, it wasn't discriminatory when you were doing it for white people. Called the New Deal, the VA loan, FHA housing, all yeah, that. You didn't call it handouts then. Homestead Act. Right. All of those things. But now, oh, you're reluctant to do that for black folks because now white people who have been so accustomed to getting the hookup now are mad that black people may get a small piece of the same hookup they got. And, oh, that's so unfair. And, you know, that's reverse racism, all this other nonsense. No, when you give black people an opportunity, we are able to take advantage of Milwaukee hasn't done that. The brain drain that we have is tremendous, man. So how do you convince young black professionals who graduate from Howard University, like yourself, or from, you know, Grambling or wherever, and you grew up in Maryland, or who grew up in North Carolina, or grew up in Montgomery, or grew up in Austin, Texas, or grew up in LA. How do you convince them to come to Milwaukee? I tried. What is attractive about Milwaukee? I haven't told people this, but I have tried a couple people. I'm like, hey, you can buy, like, they got a, they got a, they, they rent a, a, you know, 200 square foot apartment for $5,000. So ridiculous in New York. <laughs> And I show them Zillow, look, you can get a house, come and walk, we can hang out, we can build something together. And they looked at me like, yeah, no. <laughs> I'd rather live in my little closet up in New York before coming here. And I'm just like, I showed him a house and I'm just like, wow. You know, it's like, I think that needs to be heard. I don't think the people running this city wants to hear that personally. They don't want to hear it. They know it's the truth, though. Listen, they, listen, you cannot be an intelligent person and not know that those are things that are a factor. No, nobody wants to, to, to leave a place where they see uh, themselves having success and move to a place like Milwaukee that has so many issues. I mean, it, it doesn't make sense. It makes national news for a lot for the wrong reason, and people see that, right? We're the poster child for so much stuff that's wrong that you're not going to convince uh, particularly young people to move here. And think about all of the people, Tariq, that, that you know, because I, I can think of many that I know over the years that have, have you know, tried Milwaukee. Mm-hmm. Like, man, I'm going to try really hard to, to, you know, to get my act together and, and, and have success in Milwaukee. And then it's like you're bumping your head against a brick wall. I'm not trying to bash Milwaukee. I'm just being real. Mm-hmm. Milwaukee is a difficult place for a lot of folks. And, you know, you have this crab in the barrel syndrome where people are fighting for the same crumbs and they're going to pull you down so they can get pulled up. Right. And you have that constant battle, people working in silos, competing against each other. And then some of the people just like, you know what, I'm tired of this. Let me let me move to Charlotte. Let me move to Austin. Let me move to Dallas. Let me move to Houston. Let me move to Phoenix. Let me move, you know, when, when black folks are leaving Milwaukee, it isn't just because of the bad weather. You can't convince black folks to come to Milwaukee just because of Summerfest. I mean, Summerfest is a beautiful thing. The Fiserv Forum is a beautiful arena, but they ain't going to convince nobody to come to Milwaukee. They're like, man, I can see the Fiserv Forum on the Internet. I don't need to move to Milwaukee to see it. Not to say there aren't any organizations working to retain and attract black professionals to Milwaukee. One organization Reggie mentions is called Fuel Milwaukee, which aims to do just that. But it takes more than just one organization to bring black professionals and retain black professionals in the city. And more importantly, to start closing the racial wealth gap. It's going to take more than construction of condos, which has exploded across the city, especially in downtown. You know, you, once you come here, you move into the condo, you're like, really happy. Like, man, this is a beautiful condo. It's cheap, blah, blah, blah. But then it's like, 
So uh, what what do y'all do on the weekends? You know, where where the clubs at? Clubs? Ain't got no clubs. You know, <laughs> you're not gonna have the the atmosphere you have in so many other places. And that that's something that to me, and I, I remember this, uh, Tariq, uh, when when I when I moved back to Milwaukee in the early '90s after leaving in the early eighties and I came back and as I was driving back to Milwaukee, driving over that, that, that bridge downtown coming into downtown Milwaukee. And I looked over to my right. I'm like, man, where are the tall buildings? We ain't built no tall buildings in the last 10 years of Milwaukee. It still looked old and raggedy like it did when I left 10 years ago. And, you know, they built some, some new buildings and try to fix downtown up better now. But Milwaukee is still a very old-fashioned place because it's still run by a bunch of old-fashioned-minded folks. You know, we, we were a very conservative city for a very long period of time, and we're still very conservative. We're we, we, we not progressive. Milwaukee is not a progressive place. Uh, in, in leadership, uh, we don't have progressive leaders in, in the way that some of these other cities do. Coming up next on By Every Measure, we're talking with two black professionals and entrepreneurs from the private sector who are stepping up where government hasn't. Both are working to close the racial wealth gap in their own way. We'll learn how next. Radio Milwaukee is on a mission. And if you're here to discover new perspectives on music in Milwaukee, then you're on a mission too. Join today to support the programming you love. Visit RadioMilwaukee.org and click the orange heart. Welcome back to Buy Every Measure. In the second half of each episode, we're going to talk about possible solutions being developed right here in Milwaukee. Solutions that could be scaled to other cities facing the same challenges. When it comes to banking, we know there's a huge disparity, which has played a role in this racial wealth gap in our country. Here's an example. In 2019, in the fourth quarter, Black-owned banks held a total amount of assets totaling $5.2 billion. That seems really good, doesn't it? But listen to this. Non-minority institutions held in the community and non-community banks had a total assets of $17.7 trillion, trillion with the T dollars, according to data from the FDIC. For example, J.P. Morgan Chase alone, the country's largest bank, holds assets of $3.1 trillion. Again, all of black-owned banks held assets of $5.2 billion. You see what I'm talking about. Joining me now is Elmer Moore, Executive Director of Scale Up Milwaukee. Scale Up Milwaukee is an initiative of the Greater Milwaukee Committee. It runs a number of programs, including Scalarator, CEO Forum for Growth, Meet the Masters Series, and a growing membership platform. Scale Up Milwaukee has helped create more than 150 new jobs in the region, according to its website. I started by asking about Netflix, which recently announced a plan to invest $100 million, or 2% of its cash holdings, into financial institutions and organizations to directly support black communities in the U.S. So talk about, for those... And like, who don't understand why I brought up black banks and why, and why Netflix investment is important. Why is it important to invest in banks in your community? Explain that to someone who's like, this seems ridiculous. Why Netflix? Why Netflix just give it to my school? Why can't Netflix give it to directly? 
Netflix and Reed Hastings' decision to make investments in financial institutions was an important and a pretty bold move.、Um, it's going to be challenged because there's a lot of folks that are saying, "Yeah, but that doesn't affect me."、Uh, but it's important. It's, it's actually attacking something at a systems level. Unless we create institutions that can advantage communities at a systems level, we're never going to be able to. Cure our way one symptom at a time to actual community health. So we have to attack the system. There's this there's this term called economic velocity, and economic velocity is the word used to describe how much time capital stays inside of a community. So I get my paycheck, I go home, and I decide to order something on Amazon. From the moment my the the money hits my bank account. Or I get paid. A clock starts. The moment that I spend that dollar outside of my economic community, the clock stops, and that time is the velocity. The way to empower communities is a adding capital and b slowing down how much time money spends in that community. So if you look at African American economic velocity, it's counted in hours. If、yeah, that's what I heard. Yeah,、like、yeah, an hour, two hours. It's crazy. So, if we、uh, think about how do we slow down that velocity, we're going to have to make some really deliberate choices. We also, also, also have to think about infusing capital into those economies. That's what investing in those black-led institutions is going to do.、Mm-hmm. Why is it meaningful that Netflix、uh, made this investment? Who cares? Is really the the nice way.、Uh, <laughs> you're being nice. Who cares? You know, if we want to ask the question, should they have done something else? That's a different question. If we want to ask the question, will it have impact?、Uh, yes, but a small one because、uh, a better number than 100 million would have been 300 million or、uh, 800 million. But if used wisely,、uh, those institutions can actually generate pretty substantial impact. If those banks use that those deposit bases or that that、uh, that asset base to make targeted investments where they send their loans, that hundred million dollars can do can do a lot. As Elmer mentioned, more capital leads to entrepreneurship, which is urgently needed in Black communities. But can banks do it all? We have been systemically left out in so many different places for so long. It, it's necessary for us to take ownership in our own businesses,、um, creating our own economy. Next, we speak to Nadia Johnson of Milwaukee-based software company Jet Constellations and the Milky Way Tech Hub. Her Milky Way Tech Hub took matters into its own hands and launched a $50 million venture capital fund to invest in Black and Brown tech businesses. Yeah, so you know I, the Milky Way Tech Hub.、Um, Has always focused on growing a tech ecosystem or a tech hub here in Milwaukee, and eventually, you know,、um, scaling t- to the Midwest. It became glaringly obvious that you know one of the missing pieces、um, for any any tech hub, right? It, but especially for ours as we're growing, is capital.、Um, we need capital. And resources. I、um, started to interview、uh, different startups that started here and then left, right, and found themselves raising,、um, you know, 
half a million million dollars and uh, i was asking you know, well you know why did you leave and the fact of the matter is because they they were saying it's just not enough resources especially capital here and that's really what helps um you know startups to thrive uh, amongst a, num a number of other reasons as it relates to the um the culture um, the environment fostering innovation and such but capital is a big one right and so understanding that um and obviously being at the intersection here of black woman and computer scientists right um building out this ecosystem i'm very aware of this uh, the, the alarming statistics right that as it relates to um venture capital, and Tariq, I'm sure you're aware, only 1% of black businesses um, are backed by venture capital, right? That's sad. Mm -hmm. So we've got like what? Thousands and thousands of businesses um, being backed a year by, by VC. And then like, we can only literally find like what? What is it like 200 something black companies that's been backed yeah. by VC? That's crazy. That's crazy. That's why I said earlier, it's so important for us to um, be able to ask ourselves and have a really good understanding of like, how did we get here, right? And so when you have a good understanding of like the, the systemic oppression um, that's, that's got us to this point, you realize that there's a fundamental flaw in this space. And so like, I guess I'm thinking like probably why tech startups are probably a good way to help close that gap because of of their scale, the ability to scale bigger and hire more people and have salaries that can help close that gap, I'm guessing. Because like a traditional small business, what I've learned in a fact, like, is like black owned businesses and white owned businesses, white owned businesses hire more people and have more employees. While the traditional black owned businesses have usually one or two people working for them. But the idea of tech, if you look at Google, I guess, or Facebook or the ability to scale up fast, bring in more money, hire more people, plays a role in hopefully closing the wealth gap. Is that, would you agree with that? I would, I, I agree with that. I also think that it's important to note, um, it's a separate point, which is when we think about internet of things, when we think about um, 5G, when we think about artificial intelligence and where it's headed, right? Um, if there's not enough representation and those companies and ownership of companies in these spaces, the wealth gap will increase. So there's there's two things that we have to do. We have to figure out how to address the current wealth gap, but we also have to make sure that that gap doesn't get bigger. And so artificial intelligence, uh, for example, it's, it's going to very soon and already even make decisions about you know who gets the house or um, you know who gets the job or, or um, completely uh, changes and transforms industries requiring for um, you know, folks who currently don't have the skills to either upskill or they lose their job. And so, I mean, when there's so many different, um, you know, changes happening because of 5G, IoT, and, and artificial intelligence, just to name a few, right? If we're not in these spaces, we're gonna start losing jobs, um, being replaced, and um, of course, you know, the biases that are gonna be built into some of these algorithms um, is going to uh, further um, create these barriers that eventually will lead to an increase in the wealth gap. Yeah, I guess I can see that. Like you know, there've been stories about the artificial intelligence and like all the people building it are basically white men. So they put their implicit bias in the technology that affects like people are like looking at 
police departments using artificial intelligence or banks using for loans or house loans. Exactly. Or so to have more representation tech to hopefully prevent those things happening could also play a role in closing that racial wall. Exactly. We have to figure out a way to make sure that our data um, and that big tech is not weaponized against us. And, and, the, and the best way to do that is to make sure that we are present. And the best way to be present is ownership. So just to recap, here are some of the solutions we talked about on this episode of By Every Measure. First, companies need to keep investing in Black-owned banks, making more capital available to entrepreneurs. Companies need to actively recruit people of color for high-level positions, C-level positions, to ensure racial bias is kept out of innovation. Individuals like Nadir are making huge strides and taking bold actions to invest in black and brown communities. We need more investors like her. If you want to learn more about Nadia's Venture Capital Fund and Elmer's organization Scale Up Milwaukee, head over to RadioMilwaukee.org slash measure and get the discussion guide for this episode. Coming up on the next episode of By Every Measure, we're going to look at the other end of the spectrum, education. Better education leads to closing the wealth gap and the other systemic issues we have been talking about on this podcast. That's next time on By Every Measure. By Every Measure is hosted by Tariq Moody and Reggie Jackson, executive produced and edited by Nate Immig, with additional production support from 88.9 Program Director Jordan Lee, Marketing Director Sarah McClanahan, Marketing Coordinator Aaron Bagata, Web Editor Evan Rentleski, Audio Producer Salam Fatayer, Executive Director Kevin Suker, Content Marketing Manager Amalinda Burrich, Community Engagement Manager Maddie Reardon, and Imaging Manager Kenny Perez. Handcrafted sonic inspiration from the License Lab, and our sincerest thanks to our members for making all Radio Milwaukee content possible. By Every Measure, an original podcast production of 88.9 Radio Milwaukee.